Hello, and welcome to New Music Listening Club, a podcast dedicated to consuming, sharing, and enjoying new music. In this 10th episode, we are sharing a friendly book club-style discussion of music by Jury Sa, Omar Thomas, and Derek David. To find the music we're talking about today, check out links in the description for this podcast episode, or look for Listening List 10 on our website, newmusiclisteningclub.com. I'd like to introduce our panel for this 10th episode. I'm your host, Emlyn Johnson. I'm a flutist, and I'm active in performing, commissioning, and presenting new music. I'm joined today, of course, by Dan Ketter. Hi, I'm Dan Ketter. I'm a cellist, music theory nerd, and new music enthusiast. And we're so happy today to be joined by composer Diana Wallace. Thanks so much for being with us today, listening to some really fun music. Yeah, thanks for having me here today. Diana, I'm so happy that you're here. We met because I saw that you were sharing a very cool piece for solo cello that you wrote on Twitter. I've met some very fun people on Twitter, you being one of them. And <laughs> I, I, ju I just love that we're here and doing this now. And I love that piece for cello. Thank you so much. I Sometimes I forget how far removed it was when I was sharing that piece on Twitter to where we are now. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting also that once someone makes that kind of connection, you realize that you have so many people in common. <laughs> and I think that's been really wonderful. As we've been preparing for this episode, we've had several other friends say, oh, you have Diana coming on this amazing. We connected this way. And it's just, it shows like what a kind of small and tight knit community our music world really is. So let's just give a little background and context for how each episode works. For every episode, each person on the club panel picks a piece they would like to listen to and talk about. We've all chosen a recording released in the last five or so years that we either hadn't heard before or are just dying to listen to again and talk about with friends. If you have any music you would like us to listen to, either find us on Facebook at New Music Listening Club, on Twitter at Listening New, or email us your suggestions to newmusiclisteningclub at gmail.com. Anything we listen to needs to be available to stream online so that we can listen, and anyone else in the audience who would like to participate can find the tracks we're talking about as well. The tracks we're listening to today are posted as links on our Facebook and Twitter and included in the podcast episode description. So today, we're actually going to begin with my selection, and I am so happy to be bringing this music by a composer named Jury Sa. I was introduced to Jury's music by friend of the podcast, Daniel Pesca, who was a guest on our first Ooh. episode. Yeah. And I've really been just enjoying kind of diving into her whole catalog of music that I've been able to find. But I chose this particular piece called Contrapuntal Forms, in part because I was inspired by the music appreciation course I'm teaching this semester. <laughs> and <laughs> hard to believe. But I have been thinking about this historic early music that we've been listening to in our class and love how the pieces of this contrapuntal forms come together and kind of relate to that. So Jury Says Contrapuntal Forms was written in 2019 and was commissioned by Latitude 49, a kind of mixed chamber music ensemble. And 
This piece is a set of three movements. It begins with a fugue. It's followed by a cantus firmus, and then it ends with a canon. And sounds each- so fancy. Yeah, it does sound kind of fancy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this music, it really plays with this idea of old and new. So each one of these movements has the name of an old form, something from early music. And it uses these old forms, these old concepts as a template, but then Jury really plays around with them and updates them, both in terms of form and just in terms of timbre and tone color to create something new. And I've just really been enjoying her playfulness, her flexibility, and how she brings together all these different elements. So I'm really excited after that introduction, to hear what you all thought about this music. I thought that this was so stunning. Mm-hmm. Um, the or- the blend of instruments, the orchestration, everything just knocked me off my feet. I, I wrote down in my notes because I took notes because I always get nervous about We're this. We're all note takers, don't <laughs> oh, worry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and the first note that I have is, it should be a crime for music to sound this good. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, and it's just like it's it's just, it's a thing you learn about in counterpoint class, and you're always listening to Bach mm-hmm. and um, whoever else composed music uh, <laughs> in the book period. <laughs> and and you and you can see the structure, but just to have it integrated in such a way that you can identify different styles and genres is is just so incredible. Mm-hmm. I was interested actually reading through her program note. Jury says that composers have picked apart the tonal system so much by today that defined consonants and dissonance in relation to one another during the heyday of polyphony. And now, perhaps as a result, contrapuntal music is often deemed outdated, if not obsolete. Does that sound right to you, Diana? I mean, I can see where she's coming from, having taken a counterpoint class. (laughs) But I, I was wondering what your thoughts as a composer about like just how you feel about that kind of statement. I would say I would agree and disagree. Mm. For me, counterpoint is the relation of one note or one voice to another. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of this really important foundation um, in music. But contextually speaking, when you think of counterpoint, you, you relate it back to a certain period of time in music. Um, so I, I recognize that sentiment, but I think we can learn a lot about the relationships of one note to another and find our own sort of counterpoint in the mix. I definitely think so. I mean, that's clearly what she's been doing here. I am really impressed by like the rhythmic verve that she's kind of able to get with this hocketing between parts and lots of things interlocking with the the close canons and the canon movement. And I think it's very cool to add the the percussion also, which, as you said, it kind of lets you get into a different style. Mm-hmm. But um, there was also like a little extra musical enjoyment that I got by every once in a while I was reminded of the Swingle Singers. Did, have you listened <laughs> to any recordings of them like singing the Bach G minor fugue with like snapping on the offbeats or something in like a very slightly jazzy way? Is this, am I crazy for remembering the Swingle Singers? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I was feeling very lovely for a second. <laughs> Um, I haven't heard of this this the swingle singer since like uh, the first semester of my master's, and that feels so far removed from now. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> 
time is moving in weird ways this year, that's for sure. But there, there's something of just about like the the rhythmic verve that makes it like really easy to flow with, really easy to mm-hmm. feel, and um, it makes the counterpoint really exciting instead of being something that like you're thinking about whatever interval between two voices that there is all the time. It's like kind of how the parts are propelling each other or working with each other to create this like rhythmic energy that's maybe like summarized or supported by the percussion, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, I'm thinking about that too, about I know that Jury mentions in her notes about kind of updating and modernizing this idea of counterpoint. And that goes hand in hand with Diana, what you said, and also Dan, what you said that Maybe we can think about counterpoint in a kind of less formulaic way, just about relationships of voices or lines, rather than this kind of static academic counterpoint that we think of with a certain time period. I think that's a really interesting spin on just the overall like perspective of this piece on how she's updating it. Along the lines of counterpoint, something that I thought about with this music, and this might be a really dumb thing to say. But listening to these three movements just reminded me about repetition being such a major part of music and how much music we have over the course of history that really works with just very few themes and manipulates them and repeats them with a different combination of sounds or tone colors. And I I don't have anything really eloquent or smart to say about that, but <laughs> I just... <laughs> I just appreciated how focused these three movements were in a way that each of them was dealing with like one or two themes that were used kind of kaleidoscopically. And I, I just always appreciate that focus. I think that's a really good word for it. I agree with that that sentiment, Emlyn. The idea of taking just these motives and mm-hmm. and writing them in a way to where it feels complex, but also still feels really good. It feels easy to listen to. Mm-hmm. And in the mix of it all, when you can identify, you know, the subject of the fugue, or if you can identify that canon within mm-hmm. all the mix, it's just, it's kind of like these little sparkles. Yes, totally. It's like a little gift or a little like, I don't know, one of those uh, kind of hidden pictures kind of thing that you might have done when you were a little kid. The eyes by. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's really, I really like that idea. I'm curious, since there are three pretty different movements here, if either of you had any favorites or anything that really stuck out to you in any of the movements. It's hard to pick. Um, I think individually, all on their own, they are so special. But I think if I had to pick a movement that was my favorite, it would probably be the Canis Firmus. Mm. Cool. And I just think maybe it's the idea of the pedal tones and the use of the microtones. And just the structure of it all, it's the longest movement and it doesn't feel like it's that like the nine minutes that you're mm-hmm. eight or nine minutes. It, mm-hmm. it feels like just like this passing of time. Mm-hmm. It, almost feels, it almost feels timeless the way that it's structured and you get into the deep, dark timbres of each of the instruments, bringing out the bass clarinet. Oh, oh yeah. Sitting in that, that <laughs> low, the low fist in the cello, which I am such a fan of. And even the organ, the organ was so special, especially when the microtones came out. And I was like, oh, man, what instrument are they using? I got to know what's going on here, but I like it. <laughs> I felt the same way. I think for me, the a part of what like helps it to feel all together was the super augmented 
version of the the canis firmus down in the base in the organ. It mm-hmm. sort of like keeps it moving, keeps it flowing. And then I loved how all the other instruments would like comment or quote on whatever part of the the canis firmus that the slow augmented bass was doing. So if it was like in the second phrase, there'd be like little branches of the second phrase that would flourish out more quickly from the very slow bass line. I just thought that was such a really cool way to like remind you of what the Canis Firmus tune is and Mm -hmm. to experience it at all these different time levels at the same time. It's like three different kinds of repetition. We have one that we're just going through for the first time, like experiencing it slowly. I guess a little like that 600-year John Cage monstrosity. Um, (laughs) And then there are these, um, yeah, just like branches that are reminding you of the context that this little, that this giant melody is sort of put into, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that makes me feel like, about, like you know, in all the old grout music history texts, they talk about the Notre Dame like church uh, structure where you have like the, the sort of big structure down in the bottom when they're talking about motets or about like old medieval polyphony. No, that's just me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was gonna say I've never heard of that, um, but I don't want to make you. I don't want to make you feel like old or aged or anything. So I didn't want to say anything. That's fair, though. That's, I guess that's fair. Oh, that was really good, <laughs> Dan. I really was thinking of you in this Cantus Firmus mo- movement because I know you love a good bass clarinet line. Oh, yes. Yes, I do. All because of Eric Dolphy, to be totally clear. (laughs) And I thought the bass clarinet was just the perfect instrument for this kind of mystical, like mysterious chant universe that begins this movement. I thought that was just a really, really wonderful choice. Agreed. I also, that movement, Dayana, I thought it was really interesting you mentioned that it didn't feel as long as it was. and, And I had that same experience. Especially when I, you know, listened through to the movements and then looked at the timings and realized that time was moving in a different way in that movement. Because the other two are so, so finely crafted, but there's something kind of slight about them. And they're they're much lighter textures. They're generally in this higher register. And then with that middle movement, just with all that bass and this slow kind of like molasses world. It just, yeah, it had a very special quality. And the rocking synthesized organ sounds in the middle was totally wild. Yeah, yeah, I, I I definitely agree. And I think it's it was so smart to have two shorter outer movements mm-hmm. um, and just a longer one that we could really just sink our teeth into. Yeah, there was definitely sinking in feeling for me. I also, in the outer two movements, was just really delighted by all the jazz influence. And Dan, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different percussion in it that just gave both of those movements such a really playful quality. And again, when we think of some of these older forms, we're not necessarily thinking always lighthearted music, maybe in terms of a fugue, we often think of more serious academic music. But that's too bad, really. Oh, well, sorry. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> no, it's when not I, just you. Like people have been saying, "Oh, fugue the 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 top of the the pyramid of counterpoint is 
the fugue. And what a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> it's like whole curricula have been built around like making the fugue be like the pinnacle, the that's that's all gratis on Parnassum, the fugue. Mm-hmm. Um how what a weird what a weird thing. Yeah. Then you need people that can, that can just improvise them and it's like no big deal. <laughs> I'm not one of those people, but I I admire those people. Um, But that actually makes me think, and I really am just thinking about this right in the moment, that on the other hand, the idea of a canon is something that we often do think of as playful or community oriented or something that like everybody can take part in. They're often simple melodies. And it's just striking me now that that's kind of an interesting counterpoint for lack of a better word Whoa. to have to have this fugue and this canon i did not rehearse that in advance i just want to make that clear <laughs> um but to have something that just in terms of terminology we think of one as kind of a serious piece of music and one as kind of a like lighter piece of music but really they use basically the same technical process and now i'm just actually taking a step back and thinking about music in general and how we decide what's serious and what's not that's a whole other fish i think (laughs) okay well yeah (laughs) next podcast (laughs) um but yeah i just i really enjoyed the lightness of these outer movements i enjoyed the kind of jazzy little melodies in some of the other music that i've listened to by jury i've definitely heard that she also really is a great admirer of jazz and finds some way to use some of these more jazz-influenced harmonies in lots of different contexts. And it's just such a joy to listen to this music that is blending different sound worlds and different forms that she's clearly really passionate about. Right. And it's not like a a trope. She's not like um, imitating something. It's just like, Mm -hmm. this is her musical mind. This is like the kind of she is just existing in this world where these sounds are possible and it doesn't doesn't seem like something that's separated, which I think is really makes it very interesting and very fun without being too much like quoting or like changing style. I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say that when I when you first recommend this piece, Contrapuntal Forms, and typically when I go into listening to something, I try not to have any preconceived notions. Mm-hmm. I was like, contrapuntal forms, okay. <laughs> Canon, Cantus Firmus, okay, okay, what are you working with? <laughs> and I was delightfully surprised just how my expectations were sort of just foiled in front of me. Sure. And then when I got to reading the program note, and I it, everything just sort of like made more sense mm-hmm. by the third and fourth time that I got around to listening to this this mm-hmm. wonderful work. I was like, oh, yes. And I really got to, every time I listened to it, I got to pinpoint different things that were happening outside of the the contrapuntal form itself. Totally. Yeah. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast, how just rewarding continued listening can be because you do pick up on different things and there's no way we can take it all in on the first go around, of course, but it's it's so rewarding. And one thing that I really appreciated from the program note was just one phrase, I think towards the end of the note, where Jury wrote about making this music like meticulously crafted disorder. And I loved that because it is clearly very meticulously crafted. And at the same time has these moments which are supposed to be kind of chaotic and lots of different things happening at the same time. And there's a really fine balance here, I think, between crafting and 
And again, this is drawing me back to older music, where we think of composers from early music as craftsmen and artisans, right? Uh, so there's that like crafting part, but there's also this freedom to make the music however you want, whether that's transparent or whether it's super dense or whether it's using a totally different harmonic world. There's just a lot of freedom in this music. Yeah, that's interesting to think about, like meticulously. Cra- you know, Counterpoint has a, I guess, a rep, a. I almost would say like an undue reputation for being meticulously crafted. And I'm mm-hmm. just because, you know, the people that historically can like really, really do it, they don't meticulously craft it. They just kind of know what works together. Mm. And I think that they're not afraid of when things like jumble up into little uh, blobs, when you get like a, a tone, like something really dissonant and something really crunchy happening. It's like something that they delight in. Mm. Uh, but you mean Bach certainly was that way. There's like, you, you could think about pristine counterpoint, but Bach loved just like jamming lots of notes together to make like pretty nasty sounds, <laughs> especially on the organ. <laughs> There's like just incredibly dissonant music. And I think if you're like putting lines together, doing counterpoint, you run into that sometimes mm. and you just, you let it resolve the right way. And then you just sort of walk away. I don't know. I mean, I think some people, when they play jazz, there are jokes about like, well, just play any note. And if it's a wrong note, then resolve it the right way. A joke of a simplification, obviously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, there's something to that about counterpoint, too, that you like just take these lines and you run them into each other like two trains. And then like stuff happens <laughs> and, and, and you know, jumble apart. But like that's counterpoint. That's how it works. And if like you're just going in parallel six the whole time, it's no fun. Musical joust. <laughs> Musical jousting. <laughs> I was going to say that goes back to what Diana said at the top of just like how you think about counterpoint makes a difference. You know, whether you think about it in this academic way full of rules or whether you're thinking about it as just a series of relationships between voices. And that's maybe our more contemporary definition, right? Uh, Or maybe that's an old definition. I don't know. But I, I like that idea that just gives it more freedom and flexibility than we maybe have traditionally defined it. Yeah, I would think that like Bach probably had a lot. I mean, he had tons of freedom and flexibility. You listen to like any of the Goldberg variations. I'm thinking of like the 25th G minor variation or like things from Art of Fugue. There's just some really nasty stuff that happens. And <laughs> um, but it's like very free. It just works. And then people for hundreds of years afterward are like, well, here are some rules for how you're supposed to write a fugue and here's so and there's no way that Bach was thinking that way. I mean, there's nothing in his books that says he was thinking about this, you know, he's like thinking in thorough bass and just like letting music come out of it. And I think anyway, I'm sorry, I'm just being a little effusive about this, but I think that that's the, the feeling that I get from this piece is that Jury is feeling very free in her chosen idiom and her like chosen harmonic language to just write lines and weave them together and deal with the fallout in very elegant ways that are, Mm -hmm. it's really fun. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything else we should touch on in this piece? I think that we've covered a lot of ground. I have a note that I was like, it's, it's like not your mom's pure ensemble, but I didn't know (laughs) I should say that. I love that. I love that. I was thinking about that too in this music. Like it's close to a Piero ensemble, but not quite a Piero ensemble. But oh, we're going to talk about some Piero characters later in this episode. So uh, yes, that was a good early segue, Diana. <laughs> Thanks. I totally did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
well, I really enjoyed this music. I, as I mentioned, I have been enjoying so much of Jurisa's music, and I totally recommend checking out her works because there is a lot of this playful, colorful variety in her music, and her writing about her music is very thoughtful. Her ideas are really interesting, and I just think there is a lot of richness and uh, so much variety in her music, a lot of joy. Well, thanks so much, both of you, for chatting about this piece. It's my pleasure. I think we shall move on and we'll go to next to Diana. So can you tell us about the piece you brought today and why you chose it and what you love about it? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Emlyn. First, I'd just like to thank you both again for inviting me on here to talk oh, about of music. Course. It's been really wonderful. Today, I have decided to talk about Omar Thomas's Come Sunday. He was at Michigan State University for a week or so last year just interacting with the students and preparing for this performance, this premiere performance um, in Michigan. And it was the first time I think I've experienced gospel music in an academic setting that just sort of blew me away. Amazing. Yeah. It was nostalgia in the concert hall, which I don't think I could have, have ever said before. Wow. And it just struck me as being so authentic and genuine. And I had never felt seen by just a composer and, and my experience growing up. So I was really, really grateful for his time at Michigan State University and just felt so moved by his work that I thought I'd share it for y'all today. That sounds like a very powerful experience. Yeah, yeah. It. I was like disoriented for a week after that. I was just trying to figure out wow. like, what am I doing? Like, I had thought a lot about identity and I've been thinking a lot about identity mm -hmm. and how this piece just speaks to a lot about how I grew up. Mm. And that's not something that I think you get every day. So yeah, um, in his program note, he just says that it's a two-movement tribute to the Hammond organ central role in Black worship services. The first movement testimony follows the Hammond organ as it readies the congregation's hearts, minds, and spirits to receive the word via a magical union of Bach, blues, jazz, and R&B. The second movement shout is a virtuosic celebration, the frenzied and joyous climactic moments when the spirit has taken over the service. The title is a direct nod to Duke Ellington, who held an inspired love for classical music and allowed it to influence his own work in a multitude of ways. To all the Black musicians and wind ensemble who were given opportunity after opportunity to celebrate everyone else's music but our own, I see you and I am you. This one's for the culture. I really liked that note. It gave me a lot to think about while I was listening to the piece. And it it's gave me a lot- very generous. Yeah, it's very generous. Did were you able to like meet with Omar Thomas while he was at Michigan State? Yeah, yeah. So it like the visit happened so fast and he was just around in different areas when I wasn't around. I did get to see a presentation and we chatted a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I didn't inter interact with him too much. And even if I would have, I feel like I would have just been I don't know, stuttering and like falling all over myself <laughs> trying to figure out what to, <laughs> Oh my what gosh, we've doing. all been there. Oh man. <laughs> um, but I remember just after that and just thinking and feeling like, wow, there is a place for me here, you know, in classical music and composition um, at Michigan State University. And just, I've never, I had never felt that way about a guest artist, guest composer. So yeah. Wow. That's yeah, that's very powerful, Diana. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening. 
And thank you for sharing this piece. Uh, you know, I, I spent a while today and earlier this week listening to other things, just trying to like get my head in the right place to learn about where Omar Thomas is coming from for this piece. So like I listened to Duke Ellington Come Sunday, several different versions of it. Is this a song that was familiar to you beforehand? Um, actually, no, it wasn't. But what's so interesting is that in this in this piece, Testimony and Shout, I felt like it was something I could relate to. It was something mm-hmm. that I was singing back when I was in church, just mm-hmm. not his exact experience. So, mm-hmm. But I did get a chance to listen to Duke Ellington's Come Sunday, and I found the, the resemblance between Duke Ellington's Come Sunday and Omar Thomas's Come Sunday to be quite striking. I felt like it was telling the same story, but with just different undertones of emotions and feelings. Mm. With Duke Ellington, it was more like like this yearning, this sort of like maybe like a troubling sort of undertone. And mm-hmm. with the same sort of format, this idea of like, I don't know if you were to equate it to classical music terms, like this almost sort of like recitative type oh, of cool that Omar is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the harmonies that he uses, it's just it just sounds more a lot more bright and hopeful. I love that you just used the word recitative. I hadn't thought about Neither had I. Wow. Particular term. But in my own notes, I had written about how the whole first movement, the whole testimony movement is so speech like. And there are these like beautiful lines and they're performed very lyrically by the wind symphony or wind ensemble at Michigan State. But looking at the score a little bit and just really listening, there's they're really spoken lines. So I'm so glad that you brought that up because I, I only got that with repeated listening, really, but I hadn't thought of it quite as a recitative, but I love that. That also, I had never thought about this before with like gospel style singing, but that makes a lot of sense where like something like a Hammond organ would play a chord and somebody, the soloist would sing, you know, a line and often add a lot of ornamentation or be very free with the way that they're declaiming the words and like really try to get at the emotion of the words like paint the emotion with how they're ornamenting it and how they're styling it is so much like recitative it's like exactly the same function to be able to like really express something and to be able to be free with the way that you're declaiming it that makes a lot of sense i'd never thought about that yeah it just it's just soulful that's all it is a soulful recitative um which i can appreciate (laughs) (laughs) i love that I feel like that's a new term, right? Soulful recitative. I like it. <laughs> All right, Omar Thomas, we are copywriting it. <laughs> Please make sure to give us credit. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, I had a couple of questions for you all. Sure. Um, that I just wanted to ask. Just like your experience with gospel music beforehand, before um, listening to this piece and if you've had any experiences that informed your listening or um, how did you go about listening to this to this work? So first off, I really don't have much background at all with gospel. And that said, there were two things that really struck me about my listening experience. The one was that even though the kind of musical style and inspiration wasn't as familiar to me, there was something really familiar about this music because as a flutist, I've played in a lot of band and wind ensemble situations. And there was something just about the feeling 
of the setting of the music that felt really familiar. Just like the wind colors and everything. Yeah, Yeah. the colors and those kinds of interactions. And also, I was so struck by watching this because we have a video posted of this performance. And the whole ensemble, which I'm going to assume that many people playing in that group also probably don't have a rich gospel background, were so into the music They just like in their own playing experience, you could see that they loved what they were doing and were really moved by it. So that maybe doesn't totally answer your question, but it just it felt to me like there was a real community sense of love and joy in even the performance and the reception of this music. I think, you know, to go off of that, um, and to answer your question, um, like Emlyn, growing up, I didn't have a lot of firsthand experience with gospel music. Uh, I thinking about kind of where I saw it in my life as a child was mostly in movies, sort of for like, really celebratory scenes in movies, mm-hmm. they would have like the sort of vamp sections, especially in certain movies where, you know, and you think about the sound of that kind of music, and it's just like the soul of rock and roll seems to be that part of gospel. There's like so much influence on rock and roll from gospel. Just listening to a small amount of it makes it very obvious how much influence that there is. That's sort of where I'm coming from too. To get ready for this, I listened to several gospel recordings. Uh, I mentioned that I listened to that Duke Ellington piece. And I also um, had sort of like pinned in my like to read pile a article from the Journal of the American Musicological Society, and I'm feeling so nerdy right now, by Braxton Shelley <laughs> called Analyzing Gospel. And this is me like being my true music theory nerd. Because um, <laughs> he's a gospel musician and an academic, and I'm just, uh, I'm sorry, I'm such a nerd. But I, <laughs> I really, really enjoyed reading him talking about how he thinks that like gospel creates experience for the people that participate in it. He builds up this framework in the article talking about how the way that gospel is put together, it's meant to create a situation that like blurs the line between the performers and the audience to create this like really beautiful kind of community feeling where people can participate uh, they can sing along, and they're sort of almost all of the musical devices that are there are to like really directly paint uh, spiritual experiences. And then uh, through the vamp um, in the, the second section of a lot of different gospel tracks that he talks about, just to sort of elevate the energy by adding texture and bringing everybody together, kind of inviting everybody to participate and elevate and like modulate and just like create all of this energy to like create an experience that makes people able to contemplate their community and contemplate their spirituality and connectedness. And like, there's this really, I don't know, it it was such a awesome article to read for a nerd like me. And it gave me like a great perspective on the different kinds of musical strategies that Omar was using in Come Sunday to like create the sense of community and the sense of like spiritual welling up that obviously had a huge effect on the kids that were playing and the audience. I mean, the audience claps that, you know, the kids are smiling. They're like feeling like they're really a part of something. And I think that that's just, that like really speaks to the, the genre and the aesthetic goals of the genre. 
And I think it's just so awesome. I don't know. For some reason, Braxton Shelley was able to give me words to talk about that. And I would recommend reading the article to anybody that is a nerd like like I am. (laughs) Well, I'm really curious going off of kind of that academic paper standpoint, but also from a practitioner to ask you, Diana, because you spoke about this being really a personal piece and speaking to your personal experience. We would love to hear more about your experience with gospel and kind of how this fits into that experience. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of piggyback off of Dan's comments from, you said Braxton Shelley? Yes, yeah. Okay, yeah, from his article. And this thing about community, and it's it's so crazy when I was contemplating about my identity and how much community is a part of that. Um, I feel like growing up in church is something that's emphasized. Mm. Um, it's like, no matter what's going on, we are here for you. Mm-hmm. No matter how judgy anybody is, either, <laughs> okay? Just gonna throw that out there, <laughs> um, but it's just this idea of community, and one of the ways that you celebrate or you get together as a community is through is through music, is through song, um, singing. We always had young people playing instruments, playing drums, playing piano, singing, all of these things, and I just felt taken just back to that because I think that when you're in a moment, when you're encouraged to do it, when you're singing all these songs, regardless of of what it's about. It's all about being there together. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's the most important takeaway for me. If I could think of a specific place that this piece took me back to, in my hometown of Junction City, Kansas, we had this celebration called the Fifth Sunday Musical. So every Fifth Sunday, the area churches would come together and every church would offer their own song. And then we'd have like a joint choir at the end from all the, the singers in the community who wanted to do it. And it's just like, it brings up that environment again, like this environment of community getting together. And in this sense, it was worshiping, but it all happened through music. And I think that's, it's so special and so important. And I, I feel like some people don't recognize like the, the power of music, like, you know, when the church mm-hmm. wasn't bringing their A game in the choir, you know, people were <laughs> People were talking about it. People were being shady or um, being in youth choir. We had pride. We were like, oh, man, we're the best choir at church. You know what I'm saying? But <laughs> but it's just it's just this idea that we all got to come together and we all got to make music. And so I think that's just part of the reason why I'm still here, still making music, is because of my experience. That's amazing. Dan, I think although the – you know, musical traditions may have been different. I think that you had that experience, like being raised playing church music, like that was a big part of the community music making, I assume, in your own childhood. Yeah, I, uh, my mom is uh, amateur flutist. And my older brother and my younger brother both play wind instruments, oboe and flute. And we often would play music for church services. And that was just a large part of my musical performance experience when I was growing up was playing like a little Haydn trio before a church service or and playing like music for church services for funerals for weddings for all kinds of things and a lot of the support that I uh, received with people saying like wow we really like to hear you play was through the church because I wasn't like performing a lot of crazy recitals around town I didn't even play a (laughs) recital actually as a cellist until like midway through my undergrad I didn't like play a recital which is kind of interesting to think about but I did a lot of performing before that mostly chamber music stuff 
I'm just picturing a little, you know, 12 year old cellist playing their crazy recitals around. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, some of the people I met at school, they talked about what they did when they were kids. And okay, I was like, that's fair. That was not me. I, that was not yeah. me. I was playing little trios with my mom. <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's something, I, I think that that was a, just having that experience sort of helped me incorporate playing music for other people as a part of my identity. And the more that I reflect on that, it's like a really big part of my musical practice, even today. Like I still crave trying to play music and create a sense of community with the music that I play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's something that Emma and I talk about all the time. Uh, We don't need to get into what we do for that, but, um. It's just really interesting to hear you talk about that, Diana, and really beautiful to think about when listening to this music. One of the things that Braxton Shelley was talking about in like gospel performance practice is um, he talks about textural accumulation. So like as you go through different um, formal sections, uh, the tendency to like make adding of texture be something that has like a real impact on the meaning and the experience of the music. So it's not like just the rhythm or just the notes, but like how many people and sort of how are things filled out and how chords might be voiced. So I really felt that like in the first testimony section, you know, it starts out with the solo saxophone. So that's like, feels like being alone. You know, you can picture that being like one person singing a solo. And then it goes on to like have several wind instruments sing- playing together, singing together, some like higher wind instruments. And then as it goes through like four different sections in testimony, like the texture increases and it feels like a whole group of people are like, start to hold hands and sing together. And that like is just such a warm, beautiful feeling that you can create just by changing the texture. That's so amazing and just like directly evocative of what it seems like that you were talking about. And now I've just talked way too much, but um, you're doing great, Dan. <laughs> Don't you ever think otherwise? <laughs> That's so nice. <laughs> um, no, but I, I definitely agree. I feel like I can't even talk about this from like a what's happening in the music standpoint because it just gives me all the feels, and mm. I just stop dead in my tracks. I think it's amazing to. I mean, I've had this experience hearing this music, and you just said you felt seen. That's just a truly powerful and wonderful and transformative experience. I That makes me very happy. I just wanted to ask you two, what moments stuck out to you the most? Like if there's anything specific that just you couldn't get out of your mind um, after mm. doing an initial listen? Well, I think two of the things that stuck out to me, as I mentioned, this kind of speech-like quality of the first movement, which was just beautiful. And as Dan, you mentioned, um, just adding these layers, uh, adding extra texture, adding more depth. I thought it was quite interesting in both movements, how as he added additional voices, we had this huge variety of colors just because of the instrumentation choices he was making to pair with each other. Because there were often several lines, several voices that would be in unison and then other things happening around them. But I just love that variety of colors and textures that he created just through these intentional like orchestration choices. And I also was really struck by the second movement, which just kept building up and building up <laughs> and building up. And again, it was pretty awesome to have the video because you could see how excited the ensemble was and also feel how excited the audience was that they kept wanting to like 
break out in applause, but there was still more to go because it was still building in the music. And I, I just found it really thrilling and exciting. And in some ways, listening to it at first, it made me feel kind of like this straight ahead homage to gospel, but he was making so many beautiful choices of of texture, of instrumentation, of voicing that really made it its own beautiful thing. I thought it was interesting in the uh, in the note for the piece, he talks about it being like an homage to the Hammond organ. Mm-hmm. And what better way to like build a super organ than to use a wind ensemble, which is like a whole bunch of people that are, you know, blowing into pipes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Dan, the- Dan, that's been my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> You're like one wow. in Oregon. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and um, so he, he's like, it, the wind ensemble is already like a super organ. And then he plays around with these different, different timbres that are available to like, I don't know. I mean, saying that he's, it's an homage to the Hammond organ. Some of that is the figuration, like some of the, the like ornamentation that's put into mm-hmm. the lines. But I think mm-hmm. that sometimes the doubling that he's going for, he's like trying to create a doubling that would like mimic a sound that you might get out of a Hammond organ. Like some of the doublings in the testimony movement, I think were especially that way. Some of the use of clarinets or saxophones. I don't know. I mean, I I was listening for it because he mentioned it. I was thinking like, does this sound like a Hammond? Yeah, it kind of does. And maybe, (laughs) I don't know. I was invited to compare for, by his program note. So that was something that was interesting. Yeah. you You put a lot more thought into the Hammond organ than I did. Yeah, me too, actually. Next next time I'm going to be like, okay, <laughs> come on, Hammond, show your face. <laughs> Hammond sounds so cool. I love that sound. And I love like how they uh, articulate kind of effortlessly. It's like immediate, just mm-hmm. all there. You know, like a church organ, there's like a soft opening to it. It doesn't, um, sometimes there's a hard like ta, but um, with the Hammond, it just is like this perfect beginning to a note that doesn't really have like a, a hard a punch or like a soft, like, anyway, whatever. um, Hammonds are cool. They have such a cool sound. Diana, I was curious, did you actually attend this live performance? I did. So what was your experience like as an audience member? Were you feeling like that excitement in the audience? This is a first for us to have the performance that we're listening to, to have someone who was actually there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Every time I listen to it, I feel like I'm, I'm in that place in the audience. Um, so cool. The energy was just out of this world uncontrollable. And I think one thing that helped was um, beforehand, Omar was just like, you know, feel free to get up, feel free to clap, feel free to awesome. shout, feel free to, I mean, because that's, I mean, that's just how it happens in the church. When you feel something and you need to speak out, you do, you give a, a yes, you give an amen, you give mm-hmm. a whatever, you clap, you um, you do shout, you do all of these things. And I've, it, it was like a moment in time. Like I said, like I was taken back to, to how I was growing up and it was, it was unbelievable. And I left almost in tears, tears of joy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also curious, have you engaged with any other music by Omar Thomas? Just, just a couple of things. Mm-hmm. I can't think of the album off the top of my. I feel head. like I, I had heard of him um, more in like the jazz realm. He has his own big band, and right of the music that he was presenting, mm-hmm. he presented a little bit on this. Um, his other wind ensemble piece called Shenandoah. Okay, and then he presented on a couple of the pieces from his uh, album from his big band. 
Cool. Very cool. I had heard his name more in the jazz realm. And when I did some research on him, you know, preparing for this episode, I listened to several of his wind ensemble pieces. And I am just really excited to hear more from him as he is writing for different kinds of ensembles. Because I mean, this writing is just so colorful and powerful and masterful, you know, it's like just wonderful writing for this ensemble. So I'm very excited to see what he does next. I think it's awesome that, you know, to have such a big band background and then also the chops to like deal with all the colors of the million toys in a wind orchestra. Hey. <laughs> no, it's like a Be million nice. different things. And <laughs> like, you know, they all have their crazy quirks and weird ranges. And like, you have to know a lot to write effectively for wind band. It's like a real niche or like a special skill. Mm-hmm. And to be able to bring like real big band chops to that, um, I feel like it's just a boon to any wind ensemble to be able mm-hmm. to like take this special group because it really sounds special when it's treated the right way and to be able to play music that's so exciting instead of some of the um well some of the bandy favorites like some of the music's really really amazing and others is just not i don't know maybe i just was in high school too long wow. <laughs> string players their own shade <laughs> I'm going to say nothing while we're talking about wind ensemble because I just want to be nice. Perfect. Diana, you're so diplomatic. No, but, like it's so cool to have the energy of like a big band in a wind band. That's like such an awesome yes. kind of transformation to make. And yes. gosh, I mean, I almost feel like bugging people that we know that run wind orchestras to program this piece. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I just I, I can't recommend enough uh, for anybody that doesn't necessarily feel like walking into this. I didn't have as much of a, a grounding for how to listen to gospel music, um, as you mentioned that you did, Diana. Um, but I feel like I can really connect with it after reading this article by Braxton Shelley. I feel like I, I, I am listening for these cues to like participate and to feel community and thinking about kind of how he's doing that while he's writing. And some of the writing in the article was actually just beautiful, just straight up really poetic and interesting. Academic articles are hard to chow through, but uh, as a, (laughs) and there's also several um, examples that he provides like recording examples um, and transcriptions of them that he talks about. And that was also very eye-opening for me to hear what he's talking about and then listen to the excerpts that he's talking about and then listen to this work by Omar Thomas and just think it gave me more of a footing in gospel idiom than I really ever had before, to be totally honest. I believe Braxton also has um, a book about gospel harmony. I can't think of the name mm. of it. but I think that, you're right. That also might pique your theory nerd interest mm-hmm. understood i i hear you <laughs> i see a christmas gift in the future cool <laughs> make sure to also put my name on it <laughs> soulful recitative <laughs> oh, i love it well diana thank you so much for recommending this piece and for sharing this wonderful music with us and just for sharing your personal experience with it too that's really special yeah well thank you both so much for for listening to what i had to say oh well 
we're just so happy to have you here. And if Omar Thomas is listening, we are so excited to see whatever he's up to next. <laughs> Thank you for just introducing me to something something new that I wouldn't probably have run into spontaneously otherwise. Um, yeah. I learned a lot. Um, I'm really interested to learn a lot more. And I'm just very thankful for your time and for sharing that. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Well, I think we're ready to move on to our final piece. So the last piece uh, was the piece that I chose. And because Diana is a composer and a cellist, uh, I wanted to pick a piece that was for cello ensemble. And so sweet. When Diana was talking about the piece that she chose, she was talking about something that made her feel at home. And I was trying to think about what in my musical experience makes me feel at home. And, you know, as weird as it sounds, I think it's cello ensemble. Um, Amazing. Have Diana, have you played in a cello ensemble recently? No, I actually haven't ever played in a cello ensemble. Only um, like string quartets. Well, string quartets are awesome. Um, <laughs> I The first cello ensemble that I played in was like, uh, maybe I was in middle school or early high school. I went to like a little cello clinic in Kansas City that Carter Enyart was running. And I have this very, very vivid memory of playing like an arrangement for cello choir of the Allegretto from Beethoven 7. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, and I remember like, um, you know, in the... In one of the treble parts, I was playing one of the treble parts. There's like this octave leap. I remember practicing that so much because it's like a giant, you know, octave leap in the treble register on the cello. And I'm just this little baby. And um, when it came time to like play the concert, having this like very overwhelming musical experience playing this like, you know, very beautiful powerful piece by Beethoven and then doing it in a cello choir which is like a pretty cool sound it's like got a special sound to it and then you know since then I've had lots of experiences in other cello ensembles like in school like my teacher and my masters organized a cello ensemble that we played in during my like DMA stuff at Eastman I put together a cello ensemble and I always felt it was like a really great way to connect with all the cellists because they were never like as competitive as the violinists. It just feels different. <laughs> like it's like a chill environment of people that, you know, like really just want to play cool tunes. Does that make any sense at all or my I... Yes. So th that's kind of where I feel like that I'm at home maybe. Um and I, it's a different kind of experience than the one that you were talking about definitely. That's kind of like a musical home for me and that's something that I do with my students now at Missouri State as we play in cello ensemble, I'll try to find ways for us to collaborate together to make the studio like a family instead of I don't like to make people compete with each other but like like to work together. So the piece that I brought today was a piece for cello ensemble uh, for cello quintet by Derek David called Et in Bergamo Ego, written in 2017. It's for cello quintet. And I heard about this piece because it was commissioned and premiered by a cello quintet called Sakura um, from LA. And one of my very best friends, Mike Kaufman, is one of the cellists in Sakura. And he talked to me about this piece when they were commissioning it. And I just never really got around to listening to it until I, like, for this podcast, I decided to take this opportunity to listen to some cello ensemble music and to listen to this piece specifically. But I was hoping to, you know, connect with you as a cellist and to get your 
thoughts about like what it was like maybe to listen to some cello ensemble music or what you thought about how Derek David was able to to use the cello quintet in some pretty creative ways. What did you think, Diana? I, I had the same reaction that I had when I was listening to uh, the piece by Jerusa. It was just like, oh my God. <laughs> and so the first thing I'll say is that Derek David has has quite the knack for utilizing the entire range of a cello, mm-hmm. especially in the context of this ensemble. And I think how everything happens in canons, how he has these couple of motives that he's using every so often, how they just reappear in a different context. And I'm just so shocked and surprised. Um, I love his timbral language. Everything's, yeah, I just, hmm, I don't know what to say. Is a lot. Like, there's so much that happens. Like, looking at the score is kind of amazing because there's so much stuff that's just like gestural, not even necessarily notating notes, but like just sort of like rhythms and scratch, like tremolo and just like noise and chaos and craziness. But he's able to like put it together into something that really tells a very intense story. Yes. One thing that I wanted to say is I feel like everybody had their own role and I did mm. it did feel like chaotic, but when there were the moments that they came together either in octaves, um, unison, or in a sort of chorale style more towards the end, like they just offered these moments of clarity mm-hmm. that were so well placed within the grand scheme of the piece. And I I just came to appreciate that. I think that just based on what you were saying that Derek is really feeding into the chaos of it all, but just knew when to have a moment of like peace or like moment of stillness that just really made such an impact. I agree. Those moments, the more chorale style sections and just some of the slower, more somber sections, there were moments of extreme beauty and just these very transparent textures. I was really stunned by how, beautiful some of those moments were and then it would descend into chaos again but i agree they were well placed and very welcome you know unexpected and welcome and what i was struck by in this music was with this movement between these beautiful sections and the chaos that would ensue it felt very theatrical to me there is certainly a lot of drama And I think we could talk a little bit more about the intention there. But I also kept thinking this would be perfect music for like a silent film or some other kind of like some other collaborative element, whether it's film or animation or dance. Like there is there's so much drama and narrative going on here. So to follow up on that and like the the title and like the like what the piece is about, mm-hmm. one interesting thing to think about to start off would be what does the title mean? You know, et in Bergamo ego means uh, and in Bergamo I am, and Bergamo would be the town in Italy. And you know, I was learning a little bit about Bergamo. I think that that's supposed to be connecting to this Commedia dell'arte characters that are sort of supposed to be having this big drama in the piece. Does that track with what you learned about it also? 
Yes. Yeah. I took a little bit of a deep dive into the Commedia dell'arte and I I think I'm going to continue deep diving there because I'm just really fascinated by it. You know, there's something you said that it could be like a soundtrack for a drama. I actually thought of a specific movie that this uh, piece reminded me of and it's my favorite psychological horror film. (laughs) Oh, what's that? It's that movie called Don't Look Now. Oh, okay. I've heard you mention that before. Yes. Uh, maybe one day we'll watch it together. Uh, Diana, have you seen this movie, Don't Look Now? No. It, Me okay. either, Diana. Don't worry. So maybe I'll just recommend it as a movie to watch for the Halloween season, which is rapidly approaching. Sure. It's actually a really sad movie. Um, you know, it's about a couple who have a, a daughter who like falls into a lake and drowns at the very beginning of the movie. And they, they move to Venice. And kind of like try to create a new life. But like things get very, very weird. Um, They like meet these weird psychic characters and stuff gets very strange. And then there's this extremely just mind-blowingly creepy thing that happens at the end um, that I guess I won't ruin because no one's seen it. I don't know if you're selling it to us, Dan, but all right. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that there's like there's something about this, the Commedia dell'arte characters and something about Italy that lends itself, you know, and maybe many people's imagination to some like really creepy imaginative things. Like I'm thinking about Schoenberg, Pierrot Lunaire. I mean, that's mm-hmm. also a Camino de Arctic. It's like a very creepy aesthetic there. Sure it is. I think there's just a lot of, I, I don't know. I think that somehow these characters have like imagined people to instead of just enjoy them as like clowns um, to- They've become kind of sinister. It's sinister or like really getting at very painful or really um, dramatic things. Maybe people just enjoy the juxtaposition of suffering clowns. Um, I don't know. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, that checks out. <laughs> it does. Wow. So, you know, more, more about the title, if I just want to say one thing. So Derek says that the title is a reference to a painting, a famous painting by Nicholas Poussin. So I actually tried, you know, I probably spent a full hour trying to find Nicholas Poussin's painting at in Bergamo Ego, and I could not find it <laughs> because I've never taken an art history class. Um, his painting is at in Arcadia Ego, and it's like a painting of shepherds that are like, like this really beautiful pastoral scene of some shepherds that are gathered around a tomb. And the translation of the title is, even in Arcadia, even in this pastoral, beautiful place, I am. And uh, the I am is supposed to be about death. So like even in the beautiful pasture, even in like beautiful Arcadia, I, death is still there. Um, and there's like a lot of uh, interpretive stuff that people do with this painting. I think that on Wikipedia, at least, it said that the general <laughs> interpretation is that there's like a shadow on the on the the tomb that they're looking at and the shadow sort of like represents death um, sort of appearing even in um, this beautiful halcyon place. But then apparently like one of the shepherds is like uh, sketching the shadow with his finger. And there are people that have said that this is sort of like a symbol for the birth of art for like the birth of painting, like the very first, the moment that the art of painting is first discovered. And mm. so the the further interpretation is that death's claim to rule in Arcadia in the title is like challenged by the fact that art was discovered there also. And that art is the legitimate rule, ruler everywhere. 
that wow. like I, I don't know. I thought that was just a very interesting I don't know if Derek meant all of that, but you know, my deep dive took me ever down further rabbit holes, as you know that I'm want to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm checking out the painting um right now and it's really striking. It's a beautiful painting. Yeah, it is it's gorgeous. And then to have like a really creepy title about you know like even in arcadia i am that's like halloween stuff (laughs) (laughs) so it's the season and you know in in the piece in the score there's that moment maybe three quarters the way through that it, it says like death enters right right and then shortly afterward there's like the apocalypse there's something apocalyptic that happens and things just like melt the whole thing just sort of melts into insanity until there's a little coda where the the cello plays the Jewish theme again um, at the very end. I feel like that just even looking at the title and um, Derek's referential treatment of it, sort of like taking referencing a famous painting title that Philistine that I am, I had to to do research to figure out what the title was that he was referencing. Um, and then substituting a name to like put the Commedia dell'arte characters in this, that there's probably a lot of meaning like packed into this piece and probably a lot of like, I don't know, like a lot of stories that are in it. In the program note, he says that it explores emotions of love and suffering through the Comedia del Arte play. So it's like a a stand in for to like tell some other stories of love and suffering and then death enters and everything kind of falls apart. It seems like that there's like, there's a lot of meaning and a lot of stuff that he's like trying to show to the audience through this. It just seems like packed with these little episodes. I don't know. That's all I was kind of trying to get at. I think it's interesting, the idea of all these characters. Mm -hmm. And that's a note that I sort of wrote down is like, everyone has their own role until they don't need to. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it's this idea of like the independent characters that still somehow fit and work together through the duration of the piece. Because I feel like there's only certain moments when all five cellos come together and mm-hmm. it's so few and far in between that it's just a really, really striking moment. But I feel like it's just like, an, it's like the important part of like the plot, you know, something big is happening there. Interesting. Yeah. There's like all of this chaos and just craziness. And then like there are moments where it kind of like a camera zooms in on like a close up of a person or maybe two people for this like really beautiful moment. They're heart achingly beautiful, these little vignettes that you're talking about. They're just deeply felt. But also something that I really enjoyed about this music is that as the piece goes on, especially even in some of those very heartfelt moments, it seems like everything is almost okay, but there's still something like kind of dark and sinister under the surface. Like one cello might be playing some kind of extended technique or something that's not really in line with the rest of them. And I guess all I'm saying is that I really appreciate that kind of writing when it seems like things are almost right, but there's something a little bit off. Yeah. Kind of on our Halloween theme, I guess. But (laughs) I also thought with that idea, Dayana, that you mentioned about each cello, like having its own character, something about just watching this performance I thought that even just the physical playing that is asked for with some of the kind of extended techniques that Derek uses, that is really theatrical in itself and gives a real sense of character, just the physical element of playing. I don't know if 
if either of you are struck by that, and maybe that's, you know, coming from you, not a cellist, and some of that's just the physicality of playing the instrument, but I thought there was some real, like, theatrical choreography of the physical playing. I would agree. And there's a subtitle that is really long and in Italian that I don't want to read because I don't want to butcher it. But the translation is um, a ballet for the art comedy on the themes of of Soren Kierkegaard. And so this idea, even in the subtitle of it being a ballet, Mm -hmm. implies so much drama and all these dramatic elements that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, movement, I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I appreciate just the the base material being so simplistic, and just getting weaved with all of these really intense elements, whether it be like the scratching or like harmonics or whatever else we've got going on in the mix. Mm-hmm. There was something in this music that reminded me of some of the kind of early. Would this be early? baroque music in some ways like the bieber sonatas that just go fluidly from like one kind of music to the next oh sure also um you know i feel like we studied these pieces in early music history classes that sounded like a battle was happening or different animals were coming together you're talking about bieber the sonata representiva yes yes so there's kind of sound effects right Uh And I was thinking about that so much in this music also because, you know, the idea of being inspired by these Commedia dell'arte characters, that all kind of originated around the same time, you know, 1500s, 1600s. And I kept thinking about whether he was referring back to that kind of, I guess, representative music also with this drama. I don't know. He's certainly trying to like paint a pretty... If you're going to paint a battle picture and like a picture of chaos with music or a picture of like these Commedia dell'arte characters, he really does a good job with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder in the performance how aware the audience would be of that. That's a really good question. We kind of ask that question often about how much information the audience would need to really be able to engage with a piece on the composer's terms. Mm-hmm. And then we always wonder like how important that is or whether people's individual experience, just taking the piece in from wherever they are is really the point. And I think that's an interesting question to contemplate with something like this. I don't want to get us like too far off base from this specific piece, but I'm curious, Diana, if you have any thoughts about that with your own music, about kind of context and what the audience knows. It's it's so hard to say. I feel like with theatrical pieces, mm-hmm. I think it's it, I think it's just the preference. Sure. And when you have you know one one performance, a premiere performance, I mean, I feel like the reaction um, is just going to be different all across the board. But when we get the chance to just listen to a piece repeated like over and over again, we have the choice to see if we want to read the program notes beforehand or read them after the first. Sure. Yeah. After the second listening. I don't know. And I just, I just took a class that was talking about program notes and sort of their function. So, I mean, essentially it's all up to the composer. It's what the composer wants the audience and the listener to hear, what they want them to Mm. look for or listen for in the music. For me, I think I have one theatrical piece where I just pretty much straight up, I'm just like, yeah, this is what I was thinking about. But mm-hmm. other times I just like am just talking about things like in general or talking about something that's happening in my life that mm-hmm. wouldn't necessarily inform the music. It just lets you know what I was thinking about 
at the time. So Sure. I think overall, anybody who listens to this piece is going to project their own sort of interpretation onto it, but I feel like all of it's going to come out pretty much the same. There is like a dramatic storyline going on, for sure. <laughs> it's yeah. a dra- drama, chaos, intensity, <laughs> like <laughs> battle. Yeah. yeah. You know, I um, did my, my last rabbit hole to go on um, for, for the day is um, I was trying to figure out what the reference was to Kierkegaard because I wouldn't normally associate him with either Bergamo or Camita del Arte characters or cellos or um, Nicholas Poussin or like any other things. It was something that struck out to me as like a, a unique element. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the program note, there's a little mention of love and suffering and things being consumed by death. And reading, I was reading like a I general. so casual. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just being consumed by death. Yep. Moving well, on. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I, just reading like some background about Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. I'm not a Kierkegaard expert or a philosopher at all, but I was reading and there's this very extensive, very central story to Kierkegaard's life that involves Regine Olson who was somebody that he was engaged to when he was younger and broke off the engagement. And it was a extraordinarily painful, protracted experience for the rest of their lives, for both of the rest of their lives. Um, She ended up later getting married to somebody else. And he wrote to her many, many times, like begging forgiveness. But he, even like on her wedding day, he wrote her a letter and said, like, please forgive me. But I, I had to break up with you because I needed to devote myself to God and be a writer. And uh, that's just a really intense kind of thing to do. And just this idea, it's hard for me to think whether that's part of like why Kierkegaard would be there in the title, but it did say it was about love and suffering and without just learning way too much about Kierkegaard very quickly. That was the first thing that (laughs) that jumped to my mind, like something that would be world ending in Kierkegaard's life that just like totally changed the course of his life. And, you know, maybe it might have been like a personal drama. You could picture like, you know, two people chasing them each other around. I don't know, like everyday life suddenly becomes much heavier and much sort of more apocalyptic in situations like that, that can change your life. I don't know if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. at all. But like reflecting back on an experience like that for Kierkegaard, maybe would feel world ending, world changing. Um, and maybe this piece would be a good representation of the memory of that for someone like Kierkegaard. I don't know. Yeah, where, that- where there would be sweet moments, but also really dark moments and really chaotic moments. That's an interesting frame, I think. Yeah, but again, I have no idea whether that's why Kierkegaard is in the title. That's the best guess. But I really like what you said, Diana, about like on repeat listenings, we are invited to engage with the program note and kind of decide what it means for us. And that really is a different experience than listening to something for the first time in a concert. It's just a completely different game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely I would definitely agree. But I mean, like, maybe all of these words, especially in the subtitle, are just there to just allow you to come up with your own meaning. Yeah, make your own connections. Yeah, That's it's true. like, oh, yeah, the, the themes of Soren Kierkegaard, it's just like God and dumping my girlfriend and <laughs> and writing um but the the, I, the aspect of the the dell'arte just gives it a sense of lightness and playfulness amidst all of the dark things that are actually that are actually happening unfolding as a part of the drama so 
I agree with that. And I think although we've talked about the darkness and the chaos, it is like it is still these Commedia dell'arte characters. It is still a theatrical thing. And there's something that's kind of melodrama about it, you know, that maybe it's not all in seriousness. Yeah. Which I appreciate as well. But but again, that's like you could make your own connections and read it as something that's, you know, very serious and dark or something that's, you know, coming out of these kind of staged stock characters that are it's supposed to be entertainment, right? And I I find personally there's a lot of entertainment in this piece. Part of that comes from just the physicality again of some mm-hmm. of these chaotic moments seeing how they're written on the page in the score and seeing how that translates to the actual physicality of the playing. And, and I think also there's a lot of entertainment that comes from not just these like beautiful moments that we've talked about, but moments where we hear a tune that might remind us of something else or some kind of quotation that makes us think of music from another time or from a different genre. You know, I found, I found myself smiling a lot listening to this piece because I just, enjoyed the kind of playful part of it along with the seriousness of it yeah you know outside of there there's definitely melodrama where it's like taken over the top and like physical and then there's like one moment that seems very spiritual to me like where all the cellos are playing basically in unison really really high and in the score it says like a jewish nagun n-i-g-n which is like this mystical Jewish singing tradition. This is what I was able to learn about it. Um, I, I, I said I had only one rabbit hole. Uh, I had that's another one. Um, but <laughs> this singing You're tradition. Like living in a Warren, Dan. Well, I was trying to, you know, <laughs> I, I was trying to get all the pieces to come together. I wanted it to, sure, co- to cohere, and there were all these different like trails that were going off in different directions. But this this moment of like this sort of like mystical singing with a bunch of cellos up in this crazy high register, just blasting in unison together seems Mm -hmm. like this really mystical spiritual moment Mm -hmm. in the context of like uh, the mundanity of like, you know, a clown chasing a woman or something like that. And then like all these other characters going about their business and then things being horribly wrong and somebody being drunk and then like a tornado, a death and destruction. There's also this like moment of reflection and like intense spiritual feeling. Hmm. This piece has just got it all. It's got a full life worth of emotion in it. I think I think it does. <laughs> I would agree. And that was one of the moments that we were just talking about, Dan, where they're all in, in unison together. The amidst all the chaos, there's this one moment where all the, the ensemble comes together and it's just, it's such a striking moment. Like you could never, you could never forget it. Yeah. I just want to say something just in general about all the music that we sort of decided to bring forward today. It's just this idea of, how do I want to say this? Like the, the repurposing of something. I feel mm. like in the Derek David piece and the the Jerisa piece, it's just kind of like repurposing these um, broke you know, Renaissance musical traditions and putting mm-hmm. them into a contemporary context. And I feel the same way about Omar Thomas's Come Sunday. It's about taking this idea of gospel music and repurposing it into being something else. And I think that it's just so striking how all these composers just are just incredible and in their artistry just shows and their and their works and their music. Agreed. You know, I hadn't thought of that word about repurposing and I because I was also trying to think about like 
how are all these pieces coming together? And I love that. I mean, that's, you totally hit the nail on the head. And I think with, with all the music we listen to, it's interesting to see how composers write their own identity into the music or, or don't sometimes. But I think all of these also have something to do with like some really personal elements, whether it's about identity or something they're just really passionate about. But that repurposing, I think, is something that can really inspire all of us to just take another look at music that might feel familiar or might feel outdated or or might be really personal. And we're just trying to find a way to pay an homage to it, you know? Yeah, I think it also, you know, teaches me something that we, um, these composers, they're drawing on the resources that they have, like the people that they are, the experiences that they have. I mean, Jerisa has obviously studied counterpoint probably for a very long time. She didn't mm-hmm. just decide in this piece, like, now I'm going to do counterpoint. It's like a, like a lifetime of study um, that she's putting into this piece and then her own sort of personal take on what it means to her. And then for Omar Thomas, like what a generous thing for him to be able to share that experience of gospel music. That's very personal for him and for you, Diana, with many kids that might not otherwise be able to experience that like community building activity in the same way. And for Derek David to, you know, be drawing on like this huge variety of thoughts and influences to, to repurpose them. That's a very interesting way to put that. Mm-hmm. Well, Dan, thanks for sharing this piece with us. Thank you for listening to it. Sometimes, you know, just to be honest, it's hard for me to get other people to listen to cello ensemble music. <laughs> really? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 I'm such a cello nerd. Uh, you know, it's not like Emlyn's not, you know, dragging people to flute ensemble concerts. So, you know, it's not fair. <laughs> Um, although I, if you're looking for something to just melt your heart at the end of the day, you might listen to Sakura playing Girl with the Flaxen Hair, the Debussy. Yes. Oh, it's yeah. so good. Have you heard their arrangement of it? Yes. I think their video was floating around Facebook a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. That sounds and right. And I was like, oh my God, these guys are so good. And I like their Facebook page. So I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. Well, Dan, I'm so happy that you were able to share this cello ensemble music with us and that you were able to connect with Diana through your love of cello. And Diana, just so you know, I, I just know that Dan loves cello friends <laughs> in the cello community. So I know that this has been really special to connect. Yeah, I have like an unthinking impulse to just be friends with cellists and people that like the cello. Um <laughs> And you're such a nice and thoughtful person. (laughs) I'm very lucky. (laughs) Thank you. (sighs) Well, this has been really fun to talk about all this wonderful and extremely different music. All these pieces just give us so much to think about and so many different sounds and ideas. Before we wrap up, we want to make sure to ask you, Dayana, What's going on in Michigan? Do you have anything coming up? I know we're still in this weird COVID chapter, but anything coming up that you're excited about or that you'd like to share with us? I've had a lot of recent success with my solo cello piece Shades, and it is being featured in a virtual dance festival. The company is Fall for Dance North, um, based in Canada. And so with COVID-19 and 
everything going on, everybody's looking for a way to present their normal activities differently. Mm-hmm. So along with, I think, some pre-recorded dances that they've put together, um, they're trying to present the dancers of this company in a different light. So each dancer has chosen a poem, and um, a good friend of mine, Arlen Lesko, has chosen music to correspond with these poems. Wow. So, yeah, I'm excited. That'll be – it starts September 29th, and it goes through October 18th. That sounds amazing. Um, when my friend told me all the other composers she chose, I was kind of freaked out. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like i'm up there with some like big name people and it's so stressful (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh no that's so exciting that sounds like such an awesome project yeah and when she approached me about it i was just like what (laughs) (laughs) Um, but the the poem i i got the chance to listen to it to the the dancer reciting this poem and so i asked arlen and i was like hey you know i was just curious about you know why you chose this piece um, oh, yeah. The poem is Ain't You Scared of the Sacred by George Eliot Clark. Okay. Whoa. And yeah, so she she matched the recitation of this poem with my piece because of the dancer's like speaking rhythm and like the tone of her voice is just deep and just like reflective almost. Mm-hmm. And she said it paired well with with shades. So I'm excited to just see all of the poems and all of the pieces just just back to back. I think it's going to be really stunning. What a great thing to look forward to. Yeah, that's very exciting. In this time when we're all trying to connect and and just as you said, like reimagine how we can share the work that we're creating. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm always nervous, but uh, I'm excited this time around. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dayana. This has been really fun to connect with you and yeah, it's it's been so wonderful to have you and We hope to do it again soon. Uh, Yeah, thank you both so much for having me on. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for our 10th episode of the New Music Listening Club. If you want to find our club listening list for today's episode, look for Listening List 10 on Facebook at New Music Listening Club, on Twitter at Listening New, or on our website at newmusiclisteningclub.com. After listening, we'd love to hear from you by comment or tweet to join in the discussion of this episode's list and let us know what other music we should be listening to for next time. Thanks to Nicole Murphy for composing our theme music. You can find her at nicolemurphy.com.au. Thanks and happy listening. Happy listening.